Greetings and salutations, my faithful, faithful listeners. And I am so excited today because I have landed pretty much my idol when I was in graduate school. Like if I had a time machine and I could go back and talk to Rachel Bittekoff or at the University of Oregon and tell her, hey, you're going to study campaigns and elections. You really want to make sure you find a way to do it with training under Gary Jacobson. But I didn't know that until I got to graduate school. And I was very fortunate to have an excellent professor who taught electoral politics at the graduate level. And one of the main things that we relied upon was Dr. Jacobson's textbook, which is now in its 10th edition, has picked up that professor as a co-author. His name is uh, Dr. Jamie Carson. He's still at University of Georgia. They're very lucky to still have him there. And uh, that book taught me between that and another book I'll talk about on a different day written by David Mayhew, pretty much the basics of what I, I came to understand campaign and elections, um, you know, in the political science framework. So um, when I was thinking about who to bring on to the pod, I was thinking about the time of the year that we're in. And this is about the time period where Dr. Jacobson starts to put out new stuff from those current election. Lo and behold, what crosses my Twitter feed? A brand new article. And what does that article find? It finds evidence that nationalization, hyperpartisanship, and polarization played critical roles in the vote outcomes of the 2020 cycle. And I just knew I had to have him on to talk about his research, how it informs and provides so much of the basis for stuff that my research builds off of, and to talk about what we might expect um, some forthcoming work to discuss, and, and uh, we'll get a sneak preview. So I know that uh, every political science graduate student and you know associate assistant professor is going to want to hear what Dr. Jacobson has to say today. Um, Dr. Jacobson is now emeritus at UC San Diego, so he is, as he just told me in our off-recording um, record uh, chat, pre-record chat, you know, retired, right? And uh, happily putting out a new edition of the Politics of Congressional Elections with uh, with Dr. Carson, so that will continue. He's leaving us with a good book um, that's coming out, I think you said, when, fall? of 2021 2019 it's out oh it's it's out it's out that's right that's right so it's out now uh so he's leaving us with a, a good book that's out right now it came out last year you can pick it up it's called presidents and parties in the public mind um you definitely want to read that book and he's got a new article coming in the fall that, of course, you know, um, I'm in a love. It's titled Driven to Extremes, Donald Trump's Extraordinary Impact on the 2020 Election. And, um, you know, we're seeing this play out every day because as Gary Jacobson and I sit down to have this conversation, we're leading into a week in which, you know, one of the most conservative uh, members of the House Republican Caucus, ideologically, is going to get kicked out of her leadership role in the party's um, House leadership because, you know, she may be doggedly conservative on economics and foreign policy, on cultural issues. But the one thing she is not is she is not blind to Donald Trump's authoritarian attitudes and behaviors. And so she's got to go. <laughs> So, um, yeah, so I am I'm going to say hi now to Dr. Gary Jacobson, and I'm going to ask Dr. Jacobson to kind of start us off with a summation, like a quick takeaway of the article you put out about 2020, this forthcoming article about 2020. What What's different now about these presidential elections and 2020 being the most extreme example, obviously, than when you first started uh, studying and analyzing congressional and presidential cycles? Um, yes, thank you, Rachel, for having me on your podcast. Uh, happy to be here. Uh, a remarkable thing is how in the 40 plus years I've been studying congressional elections, so much of it has been turned on its head. So, so many of the things that we looked at and investigated back in the 70s, late 60s, early 70s, through the 80s, focused on, uh, on the congressional side, on how independent candidates were, how un unimportant party was. Uh, how important incumbency status was, how important money was, that it was a, a candidate-centered, kind of locally-focused process in which uh, congressmen operated as independent 
uh, entrepreneurs building their own careers kind of separate from any institutional structure. In the years since then, all the trends have gone in the other direction to the point now where uh, congressional elections are almost entirely dominated by national forces, particularly what people think of the president, how they're going to vote for the president if it's a presidential election year, um, uh, and what party they belong to. So um, the, the Trump presidency, the uh, Trump elections, I think of as 2016, 2018, and 2020, are the most um, partisan, president-centered, um, uh, polarized, uh, and, and kind of nationally focused set of congressional elections we've ever had. That this is this is unique in American history. Can you explain to the audience? So it's you know I have I, 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 we'll talk a, a bit about like th the theoretics of it, right? But mechanically, what does it mean to see an when you're looking at data to see a nationalized atmosphere emerge and then become dominant? What does that look like like in your well, there's research? There's a number of different data before the election. You could look at uh, the pre-election polls and to see if people are voting the same way for president and Congress. Uh, uh, and in, in 2020, it was up to oh, 96, 97% were saying they were going to vote the same way for president or Congress. You can ask uh, what their partisanship, what their party identification is, and you can ask how they're going to vote, and you can measure, um, you can you know, determine what proportion are going to vote along with their party. In 2020, again, it was up there 95%, 96%. Uh, both of them historically very high numbers. And then after the what, election, what was it? Yeah. What was it like in the 70s? In the 70s, it would be 75 percent, 80 percent, consistent with uh, their presidential preference, consistent with their party identification. Um, but that's sort of the low points, about 70 percent. It's not random; it never gets down to 50 percent. Uh, it's always there's always a positive relationship there, but it gets stronger and stronger over the. It's gotten stronger and stronger over the last 30 years, and it's just taken, gotten to really incredibly high levels in the last couple of years. Uh, the other things you look at after the election, what's the correlation between the presidential vote and the House vote at the House district level? You look at the board in 35 districts, you get the presidential vote percentage, you get the House vote percentage for each party. How highly are they correlated? That correlation is now close to 0.99 uh, for, for 2020. And again, if you look back uh, 30 years ago, it was oh, 0.75, 0 0.8, 0.85. It's up to uh, 0.9293 during the uh, Bush and Obama administrations. Now it's up to about 0.99. Uh, you can look at the number of districts that deliver split outcomes. That is voting for the president, a majority for the president of one party and a majority for the other party's House candidate. Uh, the number of split districts in 2020 was down to about 4% of the total districts. I think it was uh, 16 districts delivered split outcomes. That's the lowest in history um, by, by a good margin. So you have very few districts that didn't vote the same way for the House and the President. At the Senate level, in 2016, every Senate seat, every Senate race worked out, uh, was won by the same party that won the, the electoral votes and the presidential vote in that state. In 2020, there was one state that was off the diagonal there. That, uh, where there was a split outcome, and that was in uh, in Maine with Susan Collins. She was the only one. Uh, and again, historically, if you go back, you can find elections in the 50s, in the 60s and 70s where uh, a majority of the outcomes were split outcomes at the Senate level. That is, there were less than 50% uh, were, were uh, voting for the same party for president in the House. So this is a change. The Senate is now... Uh, of the 100 senators, 94 now serve the state, a state where their party won the electoral votes in the most recent presidential election. And again, that's the highest ever in history. There are only four state or six states, six states or six senators uh, or six states with split um, delegations where there's a Democrat and a Republican from that state. All the rest of them either have two Democrats or two Republicans. Um, that's what we mean by nationalization, that all of the electoral pro outcomes are uh, coincidental or almost perfectly coincidental with one another. So my followers and, and listeners will know that I have a lot of, of, you know, explanations for why things became so nationalized, right? Because there's always mechanics to these things. And, and what you're really talking about is kind of a, 
uh, you know, quantifying what we call mass polarization, right? I mean, there's been this conversation in the media, is the American public polarized or not? Oh, look, they all still say they're moderate and it's a bell-shaped curve, right? Well, people, the worst way to find out how people think and feel is to ask them directly. You know, this is one of the seven deadly sins that Democratic campaign operatives make. They, they think that, you know, they should structure things based on explicit opinion, right? Um, but what Dr. Jacobson has just described for you guys is, you know, a, a behavioral trait that has changed over time that has produced an electorate that no longer double dips in terms of its party preferences between a presidential choice and that local, you know, that that Tip O'Neill, all politics is local feeling, right? So that has completely disappeared. So, um, so what do you think, theoretically, could you explain to people, because things have changed, right? A lot of like coalitional change, regional basis of the party. Can you give them the, the Dr. Jacobson explanation for why all politics is national now? Also, it's been a long-term development with a number of things contributing to it. The initial, uh, the, the central thing was the realignment of the parties that following the Civil Rights Acts and the Voting Rights Acts in the 1960s. Um, for a long time, through the 1960s, there were conservative Democrats, mainly in the South. There were moderate to liberal Republicans, mainly in the Northeast, some in California, uh, on the West Coast. Uh, with the Civil Rights Act and with the Voting Rights Act, the Southern electorate, the whites in the Southern electorate, uh, no longer had to stay in the Democratic Party to uh, support white, white supremacy and segregation. Uh, and they drifted into the Republican Party, about half by conversion, about half by birth. So the Republican Party becomes more Southern and more conservative. Uh, Republicans in the Northeast see what their party's becoming and drift toward the Democrats. So you have a kind of ideological uh, realignment of the party, beginning initially on race, but also connected to, to social issues such as gay rights, women's rights, um, uh, Civil rights, of course, uh, uh, and eventually uh, the parties developed separate ideological packages that were much more clear-cut than they had been before. Uh, the leaders, uh, party leaders, sort of took the lead in this, as they often do, but the voters lined up behind them. When the party leaders were sending cues as to what their party was about, you know, if you think about it, back in the 1970s, the Republican Party was more pro-choice than the Democratic Party on the abortion issue. Uh, by the 80s, that, um, the uh, right to life was part of the Republican Party platform. Parties polarized on that. Demographically, um, uh, uh, the parties became racially more distinct as you know, the Democratic Party became more clearly the party of most minorities, the Republican Party in, uh, of conservative white, party of conservative whites. The um, process took a long time to work its way out. You can think of the key moments being like 1994, when Republicans took over the Congress behind Newt Gingrich, what happened was that a lot of states, a lot of states and districts had been voting Republican for president, but still maintained a vote for the local um, moderate to conservative Democratic congressman at the local level. Most of those folks got wiped out in 1994. It's a gradual process, but 94 was sort of a touchstone moment. Uh, and after that, uh, since then, there have been very few conservative Democrats, very few, close to zero, uh, mo uh, liberal Republicans, a few moderates in both, in both camps. So the leadership polarizes. The electorate notices this. And the parties giving them clear-cut options to figure out which side they're on. And to an increasing degree, the kinds of issues that people care about divide us all up in the same way. We don't have kind of cross-cutting cross issues cleavages, we have coinciding issue cleavages. That generates kind of in-group and out-group feelings so that if, if one, one group of people is on your side on all the things that matter to you and you think well of them, and if the other group is uh, on, the, on the wrong side of all the things you care about, you think poorly of them. So we've had an increase in, in effective polarization, as it's called, where people don't necessarily love their own party more than they used to, but they dislike the own party, the other party a lot more than they used to. Uh, that's one reason uh, Trump got elected in, in 2016. 
what happened was that there were a lot of Republicans who didn't think much of Donald Trump for reasons that most of your listeners can imagine. Uh, and yet they ended up voting for him because they liked Hillary Clinton a lot less. So they didn't like Clinton, but they really hated Clinton. And that negative partisanship then was what Trump was able to ride into office. And that's only continued and expanded during his presidency. And it was a major force in this election. And it's one of the major reasons why there's so little ticket splitting and there's so little uh, partisan defection. So it's high levels of partisan loyalty. Even if you're not fond of your own side, you really don't like the other side. Uh, and that, uh, that, that keeps you loyal to your party. So what role would you say that played in this 2020 outcome? Like how, if you were to say the DNC chair, Jamie Harrison, brought you in and said, Dr. Jacobson, this crazy lady keeps telling me that actually all that matters is this coalitional turnout factor, which includes independents that caucus with each of the parties because they're basically closet partisans, right? So if they show up on and there's more left-leaning independents in the electorate, good, you're going to win some elections. If, if they recede in their turnout and they appear to be um, stimulated by negative partisanship, just like regular partisans, you know, she keeps telling me that, that that's what the secret is sauce to win. You have to make sure you outvote the other side's coalition. What says you? Do you think of Joe Biden's win as, you know, him like a conventional win where there was a middle of the electorate and, you know, it shifted drastically to the left? I mean, although there, of course, it's not either or, it's a little bit both. But what would you say is the predominant explanation? I think uh, your your, your uh, unnamed expert is largely right. It was turnout. One of the remarkable <laughs> things that polarization does is it encourages participation. I think Donald Trump has done more to encourage civic engagement than any politician in my lifetime. Uh, the uh, The total vote for for Biden uh, was up 23 million votes over 2016. For Trump, it was up 17 million votes over 2016. That's a huge increase. We had the hardest, highest turnout in, in in more than 100 years, and that was stimulated by uh, the uh, intensity with, with which people felt about their candidates and their party in this election. So um, uh, you had a huge turnout. You had stunning amounts of money poured into the campaigns. It's kind of ironic. You look at the House and the Senate campaigns. Um, they spent several billion dollars. And there were in the Senate, there were, um, I think, 10 states in which more than $200 million was spent. I, this is twice as much as in any previous Senate, set of Senate elections, twice as much. And nonetheless, all the outcomes just matched the presidential outcome. Uh, you had all this local investment to generate turnout and so forth that produced this totally nationalized outcome without any kind of or very little sign of a local effect. So turnout is very important. There were some swing voters, the independent, the people who call themselves pure independents that lean toward neither party. 7%, 5% of the electorate, not very big, but they do swing. And there was a swing to, uh, a swing to the Democrats, a swing to Biden, of uh, anywhere between 5 and 15 points, depending on what poll you're looking at, among, uh, among independents. And that gave him a crucial boost. They're not a big part of the, the electorate, but, uh, but you'll, you know, it's good to have them on your side if you can. And I think that was, that was part of the help for, uh, for Biden. But turnout was terribly important. So mobilization is terribly important. And you mobilize uh, by whatever tactics you think are going to work. Uh, this is not, uh, these are people who, uh, who, who want to win votes, and, uh, either win your votes or discourage you from voting for, for your party. If they're, you know, either win, win votes or cost you votes on the other side. Uh, and if negative partisan appeals work, then, uh, then they'll be, uh, be used. And that's what we saw. So if I was to tell you that, you know, like, I guess the predominant mainstream thought within the Democratic consultant and like electioneering class is that, you know, you know Trump, you don't really need to run on Trump in 2022, that you should make it about build back better and Biden delivering on these, you know, aid programs and COVID shots in arms, checks in bank. Like if I was to tell you that that was the predominant strategy for the Democratic Party heading into these 2022 midterms, what would you tell them? I would I would say uh, have two arrows in your quiver, at least. Uh, you 
you do want people to be happy with Biden's programs, with his performance. That's crucial. But it looks like Trump is going to be heavily involved in this election. He's going to be uh, trying to punish his, uh, dissidents within his own party. Uh, he's, uh, he wants to vindicate himself by, by retaking Congress, which was lost under his watch for his party, etc. And I think it's very useful to the Democrats to have him there because nothing mobilizes Democrats these days as much as their detestation of Trump. And insofar as he plays a prominent role on the Republican side, uh, they can still they can use him as a target again, use him as a mobilizing uh, a source again. So sure, they, they have to be. It's very important that uh, Biden be perceived as successful and that the economy be in good shape in 2022 if they have any chance at all of holding on to the House. Uh, but uh, but it, it may be that Trump's involvement will give them a little bit of an angle that normally you don't have in midterm. And that is running yet another campaign against the guy you beat before and who who really motivates your base uh, to turn out. Yeah, so I was, I mean, I think it's not an impossible scenario to imagine a situation where Biden might even have the preference of that small, pure, independent group, right? So like they approve of the job he's doing, but Democrats could still get shellacked in the midterms because turnout is is not what it was in 2018, right? And the Republican coalition, of course, gets nothing but, you know, constant reinforcement of negative partisanship, right? So like, you know, I could see a scenario where e even doing decent among independents is not enough, right? That you need to to match turnout for turnout in these key House districts and these key Senate races. Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, yeah. Turnout's going to be absolutely crucial. That's that's why the Democrats won the House in 2018. Their turnout. Oh, wait. Went, Nancy went Pelosi up. thinks it was because of health care. Well, they, they went, their turnout went up dramatically. Republican yeah. turnout went up, too, but not nearly as much. Uh, and that was an election which really hinged on turnout. And they especially had very good turnout in Democratic-leaning districts that were held by Republicans, a district that had gone with Clinton but still had a Republican uh, in, in, in Congress. So turnout's fabulously important. It, it, it kind of killed the Democrats in 2010. Uh, it saved it, 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 it made for a great year for the Democrats in, 20, uh, in 2018. Uh, they really have to worry about that, it's getting, mobilizing people, getting them excited, getting them to the polls. Uh, it's always easier for the out party to do that because it's easier for them to uh, sort of mobilize in opposition uh, to, to what's been going on. The only exceptions to that would be uh, 1998, 2002, where um, the uh, public was pretty happy with what was going on uh, with the president uh, and in the country. 98, we were in great prosperity. That was the, the first tech boom and so forth. Uh, and even though, even though prior to polarization, prior, right? Well, it was we were we were we were getting polarized there. I mean, I could remember yeah. writing about polarization in the 90s because it was greater than it had been in the 60 in the 70s and 80s. But it's nothing like we developed in this uh, in this century. Um, but still, uh, it's possible if things are going very well, then the the opposition. Uh, uh, Folks are not quite so agitated and easily to mobilize, easy to mobilize. So I think it's going to be a ferocious election. There will be incredible amounts of money spent, um, and that does affect mobilization. You can turn people spending money. If you spend your money wisely, you spend it on getting people to the polls, um, and having resources to do that in swing districts is going to be very important. If the uh, recent elections are any indication, there will be plenty of money to do that with. The technology for fundraising now is, is very efficient uh, and uh, very successful. Kind of act blue, turn, turn on your computer, click a couple of buttons, make a $200 contribution. It's gotten so easy. Uh, uh, and all you need to do is get people excited about you know, to sacrifice a little of their, uh, their uh, money. So there's going to be tons of money. It'll be very important that it be a, uh, spent well. Republicans are going to have tons of money, too. Um, uh, so it's going to be a really ferocious election. But uh, your research over time, just just for the benefit, too, of the audience, 
money and incumbency, like having the office, having the advantage of that I, next to your name, name recognition, franking privileges, constituent services, those are the things we think about when we talk about localized politics, right? Used to be uh, at least impactful on like, in terms of statistical significance in terms of a, of a of a party's performance right your recent analysis that's going to be coming out in this article um, that driven to extremes article that we talked about that shows that over time um, you know basically partisanship like the correlation between presidential vote and congressional vote has washed out the power of spending and incumbency can you talk a little bit about that yes it's, it's one of the more remarkable developments I said it when I started started in this business all we were writing about was how powerful the incumbency effect was uh, there you know with the whole inspiration for the national election studies focusing on Congress was to try to figure out this phenomenon and it kind of peaks in the 80s, where the value of incumbency is seven or eight percentage points in your vote. If you're an incumbent rather than a, a newcomer uh, in a district of the same party, you were expected to get six, seven, eight percent uh, percentage points more of the vote uh, than someone in your party who wasn't an incumbent. That has been declining uh, since then, since the 1980s. But it really uh, fell off the cliff uh, in the last three or four elections. It's now down to about two points, two, one, one, and a, one and a half, two points uh, of the vote it's worth being an incumbent. That's what it was back in the 1950s, before we all got excited about the incumbency advantage. Uh, and so we've gone back to a period of much more party-centered party voting. People are now unwilling to cross party lines to cast the vote for a particular individual just because they happen to like the individual or know his name or her name rather than... The, uh, some obscure candidate from um, his own party. And so if people are unwilling to cross party lines to vote for someone who does community constituency service, who spends a lot of time campaigning in the district and so forth, uh, say, yeah, he's done a good job, but he's, he's, got the, he's got a D next to his name. He's got an R next to his name. That's all that matters. Uh, and in a way, voters are right. It matters mar far more uh, who wins the majority the most important vote that's going to be cast by that the person you're going to elect is the vote for the speaker. Uh, and so if you want, you vote in order to determine whether you want a Republican or a Democratic speaker, because that's going to be key to how that Congress operates. It's going to be key to the policies that they pursue. Uh, it's, it's crucial for everything. And so it makes sense if you, if you really care about what goes on at national level, to vote uh, according to the top of the ticket or according to the party loyalty. Yeah, you may have a great guy locally who, who you like and has done, done a good job and so forth, but that uh, may not compensate for the fact that he's going to vote for a speaker that's going to follow a set of policies that you don't like or not going to like. So under those circumstances, the advantage of being an incumbent is much lower than it used to be. Yeah, and you were talking about this long-term trend that, you know, analysts, political scientists dubbed midterm effect, which is the tendency for the president's party to lose seats in Congress in the subsequent election, midterm election after their election. And Dr. Jacobson reminds everyone that there were two exceptions to that, 1998 and 2001. And, you know, when we think about why those are different, I mean, it is true that, you know, the public was, you know, less riled up about the incumbent party, right? So we think about, all right, what drives that midterm effect is the sense of how good the opposition party is It's at making voters feel a referendum on who's in charge, right? So it, I've been talking a lot about how if you want to disrupt a midterm effect, which is not easy to do in history, suggests is basically impossible, but you got to try when democracy is on the line. If you want to disrupt the midterm effect, then what you have to do if you're the party in power is you need to try to, sh to shift a narrative so that it becomes a referendum on the other party, right? You have to keep that referendum narrative from settling in. So, you know, in the case of what we're looking at now with Democrats, you make it about the Republican Party's brand, about, you know, Trumpism taking over the Republican Party. And you try to make, as, as Gary Jacobson just described, 
voters cognizant that what they're really doing is voting for control of the House, control of the Senate, and that would be a nationalized theme. That is an impossible, seemingly anyway, possible strategy for the official Democratic committees to follow, Democratic candidates. Um, you know, my followers know that I it's something that I intend to, to in, implement on, from the outside in. But, you know, why? Why is it so hard for Democrats to accept that all politics is no longer local, that, you know, whether they want to be engaged in this nationalized electoral atmosphere, they are, right? So tell me, why do we see such difference in approach from the two parties? Because certainly you could not look other than Biden, and I think some of that was shaped by the Lincoln Project, you could not look at the Democrats in 2020 and say they shaped this as a referendum on the Republican Party. Oh, they shaped it as a referendum on Trump. Not, but not down ballot, right? I mean, so down ballot, their messaging was on health care. I mean, I, I have all their ads and I did the same for 2018 to see like, okay, who ran like, like the way the GOP would, which is, you know, Obama, Pelosi, now it's AOC and Sanders and this local represent, represent, representative or the incumbent senator or whatever that you're trying to beat. Collins, for instance, would have been, you know, intrinsically tied to Trump, to being a Trump toady, to, so that she could not run that, like, I'm a, I'm a different person, I'm not really connected to the other party, right? Um, and we just don't see that kind of campaigning out of Democrats. So, you know, wh why do you think Democrats do campaigning differently? I think probably because it's based on their own research. They, uh, they, yeah. I think they, uh, don't they test their ads? Don't they test their themes with focus groups? Uh, I assume that they do all the modern things that modern professionals do in the campaign world. Uh, and they estimate that this is the more effective strategy. I think in 2018, they certainly you know, campaigned on uh, on healthcare and other other kinds of bread and butter issues, but they didn't leave Trump out of, Trump out of the equation uh, in their in, in their campaigns, um, and especially in areas where uh, suburban areas where Trump was not very popular. Um, so I think that the, you know campaigners are always opportunists. They 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 try to find the theme that will win for them. Uh, and sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong, but usually uh, they're pretty well informed before they start out these days as to what they do. I think the uh, one thing I need to point out is he's talking about uh, uh, 1998, 2002, uh, presidential party actually gains. One of the circumstances of both those years was that the president's party hadn't gained much in the previous election. I think in, in, in few seats in 96, probably no seats in 2000, or close to no seats in 2000. Democrats are in somewhat the same position. They lost seats in the House in, 20, in, in 2020. So they have far fewer vulnerable seats than they did in, uh, in 2010 or in 2014. That is, seats in districts that had uh, um, voted for Republicans for, for the president, but Democrat for the House. There are only nine such, uh, six, uh, yeah, uh, Seven, seven such districts right now the Democrats have to defend. So in the in the midterm models, one of the variables you always throw in there is sort of how many excess seats a party has. If you have a really good presidential year, you win a lot of uh, districts that you don't normally have. Uh, they get they're very vulnerable at the midterm. They're the ones where uh, where voters stop turning out and there's no longer the top of the top of the ticket to draw people to your side. That's where you lose. Uh, Democrats didn't have a does, don't have a backlog of seats like that to defend, so that'll help to protect them. On the other hand, we have a uh, reapportionment redistricting year, and that's certainly going to help Republicans. The states that gain seats, uh, Texas, Florida, uh, some of the others are uh, are Republican-leaning states. They have Republican legislatures that will uh, gerrymander if they can uh, uh, Republican districts. So you could imagine the Democrats losing the House just on the basis of redistricting and, yep. and uh, reapportionment redistricting. So that adds to their uphill battle. But it's not it's not hopeless because again they do do not have a lot of uh, at risk members, and they can therefore invest heavily in defending the, the smaller number that they have, and also in going after um, 
those nine Republicans representing districts that were won by uh, Joe Biden and other vulnerable Republicans. Yes, those are districts, by the way. You know, my own model, which is really focused on just demographics, college education, things like that, really show that, that there, there's no business in having losses. Because let's think about the 2020 fundamentals, right? So, like, when we think about the fact that they did lose, really, I think it was 14 total races, though net is offset by the gains of the redistricting from North Carolina. They picked up two districts that weren't competitive, um, for, you know, that were drawn in such a way through redistricting to, to go to the Democrats. So they won really one Republican race, and that was Georgia's seventh, seventh district. And gave up um, several seats that, you know, especially in California, are really prime territory for them to perform well in. And when we think about like the electoral fundamentals, I mean, we have a deeply unpopular incumbent president. He loses his own reelection bid. And, you know, we have a once in a century pandemic, which would be odd enough, but to have it handled so poorly too, and is very atypical for a country like the United States. So really the fundamentals are just so fantastic for Democrats that, you know, you would not, if you didn't know the outcome, and you were presented the fundamentals, your expectation would be for them to hold on to their house seats and maybe even gain some. So what's your explanation or like hypothesis? I mean, it's okay if you don't have a, a, you know, a solid answer, but just thoughts. How do Democrats lose these races in really what should be the best fundamentals you could ask for? Well, uh, the perceptions of, of the pandemic and Trump's handling of it were highly partisan. That is, by the by the by the end of the campaign, 85 percent of Republicans said they approved of how he, how he'd handled the coronavirus crisis. It's hard to believe, given the, the realities and the numbers and the number of deaths, and the way he downplayed it and said it was going to go away and all that crap. Um, yet, people on his he did he lost some votes on that, but not a lot. Not a lot, far fewer than you would expect given the circumstances. And that is because of this intense partisan polarization. People uh, people on his side were willing to buy into his claim that he was doing a splendid job, or at least it wasn't doing a bad enough job so that they would take it out on him. Of the districts that um, were surprising, a couple in California and Orange County, uh, and they were one in sort of an old-fashioned way. They were won uh, by making politics local. The two winners were uh, uh, experienced local politicians. They were both women. Uh, they were both uh, Korean Americans, I think. Uh, and they uh, they were effective campaigners in, in districts that had flipped to the Democrats in 2018, but weren't were very competitive districts according to their de- demographics. They were. You know, this is Orange County that used to be followed the conservative Republicans, been drifting, uh, been turning blue, but. Hadn't got to the point of being uh, Los Angeles blue by any means. And then they lost some uh, seats to, uh, in the Hispanic districts and Latino districts in South Florida and South Texas. Uh, and those were districts where one of the uh, interesting phenomena of the election was the, the fact that Trump attracted support uh, among uh, among Latinos in, some of the, in a couple of areas, uh, mainly in Texas, mainly in Florida, but also in some other states. Uh, and that hasn't been fully explained to my satisfaction yet, but it's a reality that's there. So Trump's appeal um, was broad enough uh, among among Republicans and among people who share his sensibilities to some extent uh, that uh, he was able to, uh, Republicans were able to survive the fact that nationally he wasn't particularly popular president. His approval ratings were in the, in the 40s and you don't usually win you're in the 40s and he didn't win but he came very close yes he did very close he came very close if you there are three states that were uh, biden won by less than one percentage points and if trump had won those states he would still be president even though he had lost by seven million votes so what's interesting is, you know, if if you talk about the uh, localized uh, themes that Young Kim in California is 39th, I think that is, um, and then the uh, opponent in the other race, the 38th, were able to do, you know, 
when I talk about the differences between how Republicans and Democrats can, um, campaign, and I'm actually in data collection, so I have a pretty large original data set full of variables nobody else would think to collect, but one of them does look, okay, did the GOP nationalize the their messaging and did the and then did the Democrats? And almost always the answer is no for Democrats. They don't tend to nationalize, right? So when you talk about retail politics and localized themes, Collins, Kim, these other districts, they were able to do that because there wasn't the countervailing narrative to prevent them from doing it, right? So we really don't see a lot of instances where Democrats are able to localize because the Republican Party nationalizes everything. And I've argued that it's actually in their in their Karl Rove transition in 2004 to base appeals rather than the independent structured middle of the electorate stuff that used to be the bread and butter for campaigns like they don't run anything like that i mean if you think about their messaging in 2018 and 2020 there's almost no platform or appeal that is really constructed to win the hearts and minds of so-called persuasion voters, right? I mean, it's very, very red meat oriented. So um, I do think that when we, you know, get into this data a little bit, we're going to see that difference mattering. Another difference too, and I'm not sure if you're aware of this. I know people who listen to me regularly probably are, but the Democrats, uh, because of the pandemic, suspended their field operations, right? And these were these were edicts issued by the party committees. A few candidates went rogue and, and ran field, and I'll be talking more extensively about who they were and what they did later on, fair listeners. But but uh, most people did adhere to it because, of course, ethically and morally, you don't want to run a field operation during a public health pandemic. But the Republican Party, as soon as the big shutdown was done, reinstituted both their voter registration and their field operations, and they ran field pretty much everywhere. So um, what do you think about that? Were you aware that the Democrats had done that before? Or? Oh, yeah. I, I think that was that was an important reason uh, Republicans did as well as they did. I uh, think so, too, think right? This is a mobilization election Democrats nonetheless turned out uh, the largest number of voters ever. The large, you know, they had a huge turnout. Uh, Republicans had a huge turnout as well. Uh, but I think one of the reasons that Republicans ran ahead of the polls that we saw before the election was that they did a better job of uh, turning out their people. On the other hand, you think about the the caution toward dealing with the COVID crisis was that was sort of a theme of the, of the Biden campaign. As it was a way of differentiating him from Trump. He listens to the science. He cares about people's lives. He doesn't lie about how dangerous it is. So it was a way, the way he positioned himself, it made it more difficult for the party to ignore, uh, ignore the guidelines, to ignore the dangers, uh, and to get out there in, in the hustings. Uh, and, I, and clearly the Democrats were, were out hustled in the hustings in this in this election, uh, but it was, it was tied with their winning theme in a way. So it was like a two-edged sword. It, it, uh, it was consistent with their position as the party of grown-ups, uh, the party that uh, took the issue seriously, took the science seriously, uh, and differentiated them from the Trump forces who didn't. It also left them with, I think, a, what is it, a five-seat margin to go into the midterm? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and a redistricting yep. that they could have had control over because, you know, they were poised to flip a couple state legislatures that are now going to be key, drawing these new maps, right? And and had they knocked on – when I found out that they weren't knocking doors, which I did not know until Labor Day when I traveled down to Texas, I took my little show on the road down to Texas to talk to the – a um, couple of the key congressional candidates down there and to talk with the state legislative candidates. And the first information I get in my interview with the congressional um, faction was that they're not knocking doors. And I, you can, t uh, you know, I lost, I, I literally lost my mind. I said, you cannot win. 
if you do not knock these doors. Like, I know you shouldn't have to, and I know it's it's morally terrible, but you can't unilaterally disarm in this scenario. And so, you know, it, it is, I think, a great example of, like, you know, Democrats don't want to be in this war. And, you know, we are, I mean, I, I guess I'd close out this conversation, this amazing conversation on this podcast with asking you as a scholar, a political, I mean, one of the best political scientists in the country and a person who's documented all of these changes, real, I talk about nonstop realignment and coalitions and regional bases and blah, 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 polarization and party sorting. So when I started studying polarization in 2015 for my dissertation, you know, 2013 to 2015, I really thought, man, this could this could end bad, you know, like, this is not good. But I never in a million years could have guessed where we would be in 2020, 2021. So I want to ask you, are you as pessimistic as I am about where we're headed? Or do you have something to say that you think that maybe we're going to be okay? It's hard to say. Um, I, if there's a you want to be optimistic, uh, then you, uh, you say that, well, we're going to come out of this uh, crisis. We're going to have a reasonably popular Democratic president. Um, we're going to make some important changes that are going to be positive for people's lives. The economy is going to take off. And things will kind of calm down. Uh, that uh, that the, uh, um, the, the conflicts will fade a little bit as people focus more on uh, making a living, you know, having some fun, um, uh, forgetting about politics for a while. But I think as long as Trump is on the scene, uh, it's, that's, that scenario is not going to play out so easily because he's such a polarizing figure on both sides. Uh, I mean, we've got a Congress full of people who are afraid to say that he lost the election uh, flat out uh, and um, are willing to uh, take steps that look like they're subversive of democracy, uh, at least at the margins, in, the, in various attempts to suppress the vote of people who aren't going to vote for them. Um, and that adds an, another kind of layer to polarization. If the other party is trying to take away your right to vote, that's kind of polarizing. Or if you think on the other side, the other party's full of crooks who are stealing elections from you, that's very polarizing. So until that um, set of issues fades, I think we're, we're doomed to, to being uh, at each other's throats in a partisan way. Uh, and I don't see that going away as long as uh, Trump's out there uh, claiming he won the election and insisting that other Republicans that want his support um, uh, have to claim he won the election. Uh, and those Republicans recognize that 70% of their voters think he won the election, uh, that they're not... Just out of uh, for survival, uh, they're not going to contradict him as long as that dynamic, which is going to be the dynamic for the next year or so anyway, as long as that dynamic's in place, then I think we stay very polarized. And I would expect the the kind of nationalized, president-centered, polarized electoral politi politics that we've seen under Trump will continue at least for one more election cycle. And if you were uh, able to, to advise Mark Zuckerberg on this decision as whether to give Trump his platform back on Facebook, what would you tell him? I, I, have, I, I don't know about that. I'm a, I'm a kind of a free speech guy. I, I, um, I'm willing to put up with a lot of horrible things to maintain free speech. Uh, on the other hand, if Zuckerberg, if Zuckerberg owns the thing. It's, he's not the government. He can decide that if uh, if Trump is uh, advocating things that are going to lead to violence and therefore should be kept off under their rules, uh, that's his decision to make. Uh, but I don't think it necessarily uh, is a good thing not to... Uh, keeping people from speaking their minds, no matter how vilely, uh, is always worrisome to me. And then one last question. These young people, I've got a pretty good following of the younger generation, Zoomers, and, um, you know, not all of them are even enfranchised yet, right? And it's a huge generation, both millennials and Zoomers are large generations. What should they be more concerned about, climate change or collapse of democracy in America? Huh. Uh, climate change. 
I, I think I, climate change is going to happen. I mean, that's there isn't any doubt about it. That this is a this is a, a looming disaster, uh, and anybody with any brains knows it. And we can still affect democracy in America. Yeah. And, and and democracy, its fate is, is much less uncertain than that. Its demise is much less certain than that. And this is a man who knows data and knows how to analyze data. And, and if he's telling you that we're in trouble with the climate, folks, we're in trouble with the climate. Uh, well, I, 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 everything I read and see tells me that. Uh, and that's going to happen. Now, the collapse of democracy will probably make the climate worse. I mean, if democracy collapses, doing something about it. Doing something about it requires us to collectively sacrifice some things. Not too much, but at least some things. And unless we have uh, some kind of coherent electoral process in which people have a, at least some modicum of faith, then it's hard to act collectively to do what's going to be necessary to uh, keep things from getting really, really uh, dire and disastrous. So the survival of democracy is really important, but I think the forces um, advocating that and agitating for that are pretty strong. And I, and yeah, and and you know, climate change might be the the human calamity that we're we've been waiting for, right? Because oftentimes, when a political system is going through duress and it requires some kind of intervening variable, a crisis usually is the thing that comes in. And let's yeah, hope it's something it's slow and manageable, like climate change, and not something much more intense. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the problem with climate change. It's slow and inexorable, but you don't notice yeah. on a day-to-day basis. So it never seems like an immediate crisis uh, in the way that some other things do. Um, but I, I think the current administration recognizes, or at least is full of people who recognize that reality and about, uh, dedicated to doing something about it. Um, and I think uh, democracy is on their side in the sense that a majority of Americans have come around to the re- facing that reality. A minority haven't, uh, and they have their uh, vocal advocates and the Republicans in Congress. Um, but I think if democracy prevails, then, then uh, we'll do a better job on the climate than if it doesn't. I agree. I think so. I think uh, that is the only hope. Right? It is co- collective action that that is by, uh, powered by you know representative democracy. This has been such a great conversation. Uh, what a pleasure for me, who never got to take a class from you, to be able to engage with you one-on-one like that and uh, to be able to share the conversation with my followers and fans and other people who might tune in just to hear you. Gary Jacobson, um, you know, one of the smartest minds in political science. So thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. It's nice to talk to you, Rachel.